keep my commands, you will be to me a prized possession. I will be your God and you will be my people and I will make you a kingdom of priests. Whoa, 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 whoa. We're slaves. We're not qualified to be priests. We don't even know what that means. But you're going to become priests. How are you going to do that? They didn't know much about theology. The Bible hadn't been written yet. In fact, Moses goes up on the mountain to begin to get the stories of Genesis and uh, the Ten Commandments. <clears throat> so he, but in Exodus 19 to 24, he says to Moses, teach them, here are the Ten Commandments. Teach them that if they obey these, I will be their God and they will be my people. I'll make them a kingdom of priests. So they say, like we do, everything that God has said we will do. I love that. They're a lot like you. And they turn right around and make the golden calf. I know. It's like leading, being a pastor is like leading sheep. Think of all the metaphors that we have. Nailing jello to a tree. Herding cats. That's what it's like being a pastor for you. I just want you to know that. Okay? <laughs> Moses. So they, uh, they said all the Lord has said we will do. And then they immediately build a golden calf. And worship an idol. Okay, so let's pause and give the Israelites a little bit of credit here and a little bit of respect. They didn't have the Old Testament yet. Here's what they knew. They didn't know much about theology because God hadn't spoken it over 400 years. They just heard the stories. They knew that life was hard, that they had been enslaved. That's what they knew. But their street, uh, their street knowledge was probably pretty, pretty reliable and pretty high because they had been slaves. They were in the marketplace. They're, they're uh, in the... In Egypt, Egypt was a superpower, so all the ancient nations would have come to them. That's the story of Joseph. Remember when the famine hit, all the nations came to Egypt because they were the superpower. So I'm, I'm pretty confident that they knew uh, street culture. They knew the practices, the religious practices of the ancient world. They knew the theological practices of the ancient world. They knew how to get along and survive in a culture that was very broken, very dark, and didn't have a true God. They knew all that. They knew the ancient practices of how to discern the will of the gods, if you will, okay? Because the gods never spoke. They just never spoke. So how do you discern God's will if, he, if he's not going to say anything? It's pretty difficult to do. So therefore, it's a very superstitious will uh, period of time. So if you read the ancient divination codes, which means the codes of guessing, Okay, really what that means. They had all kinds of elaborate practices to guess what the will of the gods were. So you'd sacrifice an animal and you take the heart and you take a machete and cut it in half. And depending on how the, uh, the heart fell, um, they could look it up and say, well, if it falls this way, that means this. And if it falls this way, it means that. And they had developed these divination codes over time. They were probably familiar with all those. Um, it seems strange to us, doesn't it? But if God, if, the God, if God had never spoken, how would we know? How would we know? And so they were, had seen all that, and they were aware of that. So they were very street smart, I'm guessing. And to be told that they're going to be a kingdom of priests? Boy, that was a very high position. In Egypt, uh, they could buy the priesthood. And that wasn't what God wanted. So God says, um, enters into the covenant with them. And then we come to the book of Leviticus, which is a whole bunch of laws. 
When we tell our students that there's 613 commands, they go, oh, you've got to be kidding me. Have you seen the Code of Federal Regulations for the United States government? It's 30 linear feet of laws. Okay, Just a section on um, equal employment opportunity is about this many. All right? 613 is nothing. Absolutely nothing. In fact, think of the laws we have in our church. They're not written down. A few of them are. But most of them are sitting, written down. Ooh, you better be careful what you wear. You better be careful what movies you see. Or more important than that, who you tell which movies you saw. <laughs> right? Expectations are there. They're all. And because we have a community church with so many denominations, those expectations, they, they run all the way through the congregation. And so one of the things I have to deal with, our staff does, is so-and-so said this. Oh, so? Well, where I come from, that's wrong. <laughs> I mean, we have our own written law, unwritten laws, don't we? They're everywhere. They're everywhere. So imagine, just for a moment, you're sitting in the sand. You're sitting on the edge of your sand dune because you got to hear God speak for the first time. Isn't that amazing? And he says, I'm going to give you a set of laws. And Leviticus is the legal code for the nation of Israel dealing with holiness. It is. Okay? I'm going to give you these laws. They're not going to be uh, ambiguous. They're going to be very clear. They're not going to be hard to follow. You can obey every one of them. And you don't have to worry if you disobey. Because I'm going to tell you what to do if you disobey. So you don't have to appease me. Can you imagine just for a second sitting there in the sand what a gift that was? Just think about that. You're slaves. And God said, I am your God. And you saw how I just annihilated the gods of Egypt. You have nothing to be afraid of. You are my people, so I'm going to lay it out for you very clearly so that you don't have to worry. And if you make a mistake, which you're going to do, I'm going to explain to you what to do about it. Can you just, can you just visualize what a gift that was for those people? to sit there and to hear this for the first time. How eager they were to say, okay, what are they? What are the rules? I love knowing what the rules are. That way I can know what I can get away with. That's how I think. Mark told me that when I did my, my DNA test, I was 32% Eastern European Jewish. He goes, no wonder you love Leviticus so much. <laughs> That's the way I think. Tell me the rules so I know what I can get away with. And so they're sitting there for the first time and they're saying, okay, talk to us. What are the rules? It's no longer superstition. It's now a, a living God telling his people, here's what I want. So here's the problem that we're faced with today. Some of you see me do this illustrated. If you go way back into the ancient world and, and God gives laws based on the ethics of that time. Don't boil a goat in its mother's milk. Is that hard to understand? Is it hard to obey? No. Every command's like that. If you've never read the commands, just read them. Uh, lay it by your bedside at nighttime. It'll help you go to sleep. Okay? They're easy to obey. 
But that is immersed in a certain culture of what was happening at the time. And so all these laws are framed by the ethics of the time. That's the beginning point in the discussion. But then as the Bible begins to unfold, what happens? Let me back up here. If you are the people of God and you hear these things for the first time, it's very refreshing to you. It's very protective. Hopefully you're getting a sense already of why Leviticus for these ancient slaves was wonderful, a wonderful gift because they didn't have that. Okay, But then as the Bible unfolds, ethics begin to develop slowly over time. God is not in a hurry. And we see these ethics developing throughout the Bible as time goes by. Well, now we're way down here, 2000. Okay, Those laws were written 3,500 years ago. When you look back, everything looks archaic, ancient. It was a really dark world. It really was. And God started simply. He had a lot of things to change in that culture. He had to do away with rape. He had to do away with genocide. He had to do away with ownership of women. He had had so many things to undo. It was a, a mess. And he starts with the simple laws of here's the relationship between us right here. Here's how we are going to relate to each other. And that's what Leviticus is all about. Leviticus is the, it's the holiness code, if you will. So when you, when you look at Leviticus, and if it's the true holiness code, which God desired, then wouldn't you expect to see Jesus there? If he came to fulfill the law? You, we're going to find Jesus all over Leviticus. Everywhere we look, we're going to see him. So what is it about? Um, This guy, uh, Michael Morales, wrote a theology of Leviticus. If you're looking for a good read, I would suggest this, especially if you have trouble sleeping at night. No, I'm just joking. It's actually a very good read. And the title of it is, Who Shall Ascend the Mountain of the Lord? This is the theology of the book of Leviticus. Where'd that come from? It comes from Psalm 24, verse 3. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Isn't that a question we should all ask? What does it look like to ascend the mountain of the Lord and stand in his presence? How does that happen? The very next verse answers it. The one who has clean hands and a pure heart. That's who. You see, they understood the concept of clean and unclean. We'll get into that later on. It's a very organized way of thinking about life. But they understood this concept of cleanness. The one, this is the one who can enter into the presence of God and stay there and enjoy it. The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. So the book of Leviticus is the book, the code of the Old Testament that answers this question. How do we ascend the mount of God, his holy mountain, and enjoy his presence? Um. Leviticus is about holiness. And we're going to say a lot more about that throughout the series. But let me start with a simple illustration. Okay? Most of you, when you think of holiness, you think of character. Okay? But the Old Testament tells us that only God is holy. Hebrews 10.10 tells us that by the will of God, you have been declared holy once for all time. Okay? So what does it really mean? It can't really have much to do with characters as much as uh, behavior and things like that. Transformation is what's dealing with character, the development of character. Holiness is an, is an assigned attribute. It's, okay, By the will of God, you've been declared holy once for all time. So what is it? 
What is holiness? I have two water bottles here. They're identical. And I declare, maybe I'm a priest somewhere, this one is holy. You know what holiness stands for? What's the short version that you learned a long time ago in Sunday school? Set apart for a... Surely at least one of you have heard it. Set apart for what? Special purpose. Right. Right? That's the sound bite for holy. It's far more complex than that. But that's the sound bite. So I have two water bottles. This one we just declared holy. What changed about it? Did the plastic change? How about the water? What changed? It's purpose. It's purpose. So when God declared you holy, your purpose changed. The reason why you exist is different. That's fundamentally what holiness is. Your reason for living is now different. Our reason today is to live out in obedience God's desires so that we become a witness to the world. That's our purpose. Well, the Israelites didn't know all that. It wasn't developed at this stage. And so what this book of Leviticus is about is beginning the process of teaching them, here's what your purpose is. And so every, every command that comes out, here's the Israelites, who are just like Egypt and Canaan and everybody else, and God gives one command, do not boil a goat in its mother's milk. We just took one step away, one degree difference than the other nations. We're set apart now. And they can look at us and see something different. Then he gives us a second command. And now we're another step, two degrees away from the ancient world. Another command. We're a little bit further away. Another command, a little bit further away. The further away we get from the world, the more they become a beacon of light. Do you understand that? That's holiness. Their purpose now is to fulfill the promise to Abraham. Through you, I will bless all the nations. Because the further away they move, the more these people can look and see and say, well, I want to be part of that group, not this group. And that's what Leviticus is doing, is moving them from here to here. And honestly, that's the meaning of the word Torah, which we translate law. It's not about the rules. The word Torah means point the way. They're moving one direction, and God wants them to move in a different direction. It's not about the laws and the rules. It's about what's happening behind it. Okay, And the only way we can understand what happens behind it is to take a command in Leviticus and put it in the ancient world. Because I believe God is doing, every time God speaks or acts, He's doing three things. Number one, he is beginning to mitigate an evil practice. He's beginning to bring it to a close. We're going to see that everywhere we look. Number two is he's going to introduce a concept that the ancient world had never heard of. It's called human dignity. You are so important because you're made in God's image that I'm going to help you become what I created you to be. That's dignity. 
This is what separates Christianity from all the ancient religions and the present religions, by the way. Because every other religion starts with a faulty premise. You're bad. We need to change who you are. Reincarnation is a classic example. 30 million reincarnations in Hinduism to make you something different. In Christianity, we're not making you something different. We're making you something better. So we start with the premise that every one of you is good because you're made in God's image. Oh, you're fallen. You have a fallen nature. That has to be fixed. And that's what the cross does. And then we begin the journey of making you a better you, not a different you. So you're not going to go through 30 million reincarnations and wake up as a donkey. You're not. You're going to wake up as you. You're going to become better. And that's what, that's what this whole journey is all about. So number one, first thing God does, every time he acts or speaks, the first thing he does is he begins to restrain or mitigate evil practices and culture. Number two is he introduces human dignity. You are important. And number three, he starts the ball rolling in a different direction. That's what the Torah is all about, moving you in a different direction. C.S. Lewis argued that we all have a moral compass that's just broken. And, and this is what's happening. We can't find true north. And so when Leviticus comes onto the scene, all of those compasses start settling down and say, here's true north. Now we know the direction to head. And that direction finds its fulfillment in the Messiah. Christ is the one that shows us ultimately what God intended for us as humans. And then the New Testament explains all that and explicates it. That's a technical term. To, to show us what it's all about. So those three things are always happening, and we're going to see it over and over and over again by looking at these laws. If you look at the law in isolation, okay, now remember, we're down here 3,500 years later, and we're looking back with a, in a law and a, set of, and a set of values and ethics and culture that we don't even know about. We, we don't understand it. It's not part of our world. And the law in isolation is like, why would God do that? Really? This is where we get all of the ideas that... that uh, God is chauvinist and all of this. And what we're going to see is actually just the opposite. He's pushing the cultural boundary every step of the way to restore us to dignity and equality. That's what's in, Le- in Leviticus. So to really understand how those three things are working, we have to go back here and say, what was happening in the world at that time when God gave this law? Now I can see how he's being redemptive. Because whenever God speaks or acts, he's doing it for redemptive purposes. What that means is, Something is broken, and he wants to fix it. The very nature of transformation assumes that you're not where you're supposed to be. You've got to be someplace else. How do you get from here to there? Leviticus is the beginning step to move the people of God from Egypt to being the people of God. You with me so far? Is that clear? Okay, so when we start, we're not going to look at all these commands. We don't have time. It takes a long time. But we're going to take samplings of them to give you this picture of these three things that God is doing. God is always redemptive. So one of the very first things we learn in Leviticus that is new is that God is interested in talking and communicating. Now remember, the ancient gods didn't do that. Right from the beginning, Leviticus is composed of all these divine speeches God, Moses goes up, gets a word from the Lord, comes back down and shares it with the people. Here's what God said. Okay? And it's almost always accompanied by miracles and things like that to prove to them that this is a true God. And so we learn very quickly that God likes speaking to his people. This is very unique. 
in the ancient world the gods didn't speak. Well, we now know that they're false, but they didn't know that. And so this is something they had not ever even heard of. You see, the only thing worse than hearing from God is not hearing from God. That's where all the superstitions come into play because you're operating in a vacuum in silence and you have no way to figure it out, so you have to guess. So you create all these patterns of figuring out who God is. Now, part of the problem that Israel had, and this is again where the Torah comes into it, is that they borrowed from their culture, from all the surrounding nations. They were at the very core syncretistic. They, in, they brought all of their beliefs and practices and experiences into the law, and that has to get separated out. That's one of the things Leviticus is doing, is separating out the, the mess of the ancient world with what he desires. All the musical instruments, for example, used by Israel were first used by pagan nations. We don't have a record they created any new instruments. Dancing was already in existence, so when God says to dance at the festivals, they knew what that meant. Animal sacrifices were taken from the pagan nations. When, they said, when God said, uh, sacrifice animals, oh, that's something we understand. We can do that. The cities in the promised land were already there. They didn't have to build them. When the people left, they took all those inhabited cities and homes. The crops in the promised land were already planted. They didn't have to plant them. The herds were already raised. They didn't have to raise them when they went to the promised land. That was all there. So this led Israel to be syncretistic. They consistently brought practices from their past into the future. Okay? And it got them in all kinds of trouble. Um, One of their favorite lines through the wanderings was, we remember the leaks in Egypt wanting to go back because life is now hard in the desert, which, is, which services a principle that we should all pay attention to. Um, reflection is healthy. Nostalgia is destructive. You should remember that. Nostalgia makes you want to go back. We never want to go back. There are no good, good old days, good old days. There are none. We never want to go back. Because what nostalgia does, it helps you forget the bad parts of where you were. They forgot the slavery and the beatings and the harsh conditions. All they could remember was they got leeks and cucumbers provided for them. And now we're stuck with this manna. <laughs> nostalgia always makes you forget because nobody can remember. Every study ever done on memory has shown conclusively that you can't remember accurately. That's why it's a worthless uh, exercise in a marriage. He said, she said. Neither one of you going to remember correctly. Even if you had a videotape, you still wouldn't remember it that way. And so nostalgia makes you want to go back, but, but theological reflection and reminiscence helps prepare you for the future based on the past because we're moving forward. Okay. So they were very syncretistic, and it was very hard to get Egypt out of their minds. Another example of syncretism is they did the golden bull. Okay, Moses goes up to get the Ten Commandments, and the people said, Oh, we don't know where that fellow's gone. He maybe took off for all we know. We remember the leaks we had in Egypt. Let's go back. So, so uh, Aaron says, Okay, give me all your gold jewelry. He fashions a golden bull. He said, Here's your God, O Israel. Well, where did he get the idea from that? Egypt. He hadn't been given the old Bible yet. He didn't know what they're supposed to do. Because then he says, so tomorrow, Israel, we're going to wake up and we're going to worship Yahweh. So they're going to worship this new God with an old practice. The very thing God did not want them to do, but they didn't know that yet because he hadn't given them the Old Testament. The law hadn't been written yet. 
So you see how they syncretized consistently? And what Leviticus is doing is untangling that mess and moving them from this direction to this direction. Completely different direction now. That's what what Leviticus is going to do. So Leviticus is part of the law, the Torah, which is pointing the way. They needed guidance. Just like every human that's ever lived, their tendency is to go wayward, to move away from the core, which is why church and and community is so important for us to spend time every Sunday together pointing the way because our natural tendency is is to move away. And they needed guidance, and that's what the law is all about. We may look at some. There are many places where they did not obey the law, and God was pleased with that because they got the spirit of it. That's what was important. That's what was important. So all of these commands were clear. They were easy to follow. Leviticus uses a treasure of theological images to help them grasp who they were in God, what it means to be holy. Paul tells us the problem wasn't the law. The problem was here. That's why we need Christ in the new covenant. So just a little teaser for next week. Um, Leviticus 1 opens up with a very interesting start when you look at a law code, a legal code. You expect, make sure you obey these laws. Make sure you do this. But it starts off with, The Lord God called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. He said, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When anyone among you brings an offering, it starts with an invitation, not a command. God is inviting his people into a relationship with him. That's what he's doing. That's how it starts. And so the first seven chapters are all about sacrifices. How do you do it? He doesn't want them to do it the way that the nations did it. You see, the nations, they use the sacrifices to discern the will of the gods. God said, I don't want you to do that. I'm going to tell you what I want and what I expect. And the second thing is that the sacrifices were used to appease the gods. Here's what it looks like, even today in today's world, to discern the will of the gods. In India, in the great Hindu temple in uh, Madurai, India, there's a concrete statue of a goddess, and she's got her, hand, her legs like this, and there's a baby coming out, multiple breasts. That's common among the religions. And the husbands would buy these little butter pallets and throw it at the, at the statue, and if the butter stuck, then they knew that the god's will was that their wife was going to get pregnant that year. So they used the sacrifices to discern the will of the gods or to appease the gods. In the same temple, there's these big elephants, and they would throw these butter pallets and hit the, temple, hit the elephant, and if it stuck, they knew the gods weren't going to be angry with them for this year. Okay? And so God is going to use sacrifices to communicate something very, very differently about our relationship with him. It's not to discern the will, his will, nor is it to appease him. So what is it for? Next week. God still speaks today. This is a very clear voice. When you combine this with the Holy Spirit and the community of faith, it's very clear. It's very clear. So we're going to have fun in Leviticus. Hopefully I didn't put you to sleep today. 
God still loves to speak today, and he still is in the business of pointing the way for us to go and not being afraid of him. Not being afraid to make mistakes either because he's very gracious, but he's still in that business. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for taking a bunch of, a rabble of slaves and bringing them out, having them sit in the desert and just listen as you begin to explain something very, very wonderful in a completely new way, a new way of thinking. Thank you for being that kind of God and you, and you love us and you love to walk with us today and point the way. In your son's name we pray, amen. For those of you visiting, uh, watching online, thanks for joining us. Um, Happy New Year. Uh, This concludes the live streaming portion of our service.